1: Hey, welcome to the Horse Hour podcast. I'm Amy Stevenson, and today I talk to Richard Hepburn from B&W Equine Vets all about gastric ulcers. He's an FEI official treating vet at Badminton and Blenheim Horse Trials. He was a clinic specialist in the on-site equine hospital at the London 2012 Olympic Games, and we're talking about gastric ulcers. How can we prevent them? How do we spot them? What's the treatment? If you're worried that your horse might be suffering from gastric ulcers, then Richard gives us all the advice of what to look out for this is horse hour We're welcoming Richard Hepburn from b Equine Vets. And he's a real expert when it comes to the insides of the horse. He's worked all over the world. He's a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and a Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. And on top of that, he's an FEI official treating vet at Badminton and Blenheim horse trials. That's so cool. Good! That's so exciting, Richard. And you're a clinic specialist at the Equine Hospital at the London 2012 Olympic
0: Games. I did, so I got to wear the, the, the wonderful outfit for um, three weeks in, in Greenwich, which is amazing, actually. That was a fabulous experience. It um, oh seems gosh. like a long time ago now, four years, but that was a great thing to be part of. That, I mean, him.
1: talk about pressure. That's, that's when you're highly pressured isn't it at a big event like that.
0: Actually do you know what the Olympics the actually was completely the other way around because um, all the horses are terribly well prepared um, you know all the riders um, you kind of know anyway so it's, it's actually quite a sociable event really and hmm. there were absolutely loads of us as vets you know I certainly wasn't the only one there there were you know loads of us all working together as a team so actually it was a very sociable very enjoyable time and we did so well I mean that was half the fun of it really watching particularly riders that you do work for as well seeing them succeed was just fabulous.
1: Oh, it is lovely. Do you have a passion for horses then? Is that why you got into looking at the insides of them?
0: Oh, crikey, I grew up with horses. I used to fall off quite successfully. <laughs> um, I even did a little bit of eventing um, in my own time before falling off and hurting myself at Montacute Horse Trials when there was such a thing back in the day. But no, yeah, I, I, you know, I hunted, evented um, from about age five or six onwards up to going to university where, studies took over i'm afraid and these days i just ride bicycles rather than horses (laughs) you've
1: actually got brakes there then
0: (laughs) (laughs) just about although i seem to fall off just as frequently
1: Ah, well it's it's interesting to know that you've got an equestrian background because i'm guessing you don't need an equestrian background to learn the biology of a horse but it does it must help it help must help you relate to your customers and relate to your clients
0: yeah and i i I certainly think it does really i think if anything it just gives you horsey handling really um, and yeah, you know, that's one of the things I really enjoy about my job is just spending days with horses. You know, I'm a big fan of having a little bit of a chat with the horse before actually chatting to the owner. Um, <laughs> you kind of you know, you get them comfortable then often you find the client becomes comfortable as well. But yeah, you know, that's that's one of the things I quite enjoy is just interacting with horses. I try and stay away from the teeth and the back ends so oh, the insides really? are quite in between.
1: <laughs> now your speciality covers all types of medical cases but specifically gastroenterology, neurology and intensive care. So basically is that all the insides of, of like, the stomach and things like that?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. So I did about four years in general practice, both um, in the UK and in New Zealand before disappearing off to the US to do a, a three year residency program and also did a master's as well. So I worked in one of the um, American universities just outside Washington, D.C. Um, and basically you know, got further training in, in internal medicine. So it is just what you've described, really. It's, um, you know, the GI tract, lungs, hearts. Central nervous system, skin, etc. And um, within that, I did my master's project on gastric ulceration and was fortunate enough to be trained by a guy called Mike Murray, who was the first person to ever endoscope horse stomachs. Um, so that was sort of thoroughly indoctrinated to all of us as, as, as residents in Virginia in the crikey early 2000s, which seems like a long time ago now.
1: Wow. Do you know, it does, yeah, it, it seems like a long time ago, but I'm almost surprised that it was only in 2000 that they were endoscoping horses. It feels like like it's such a normal thing to do. I mean, that's 16 years ago, but it almost feels like that you started in the 90s. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think the biggest issue has been the technology. So we need a long endoscope to get to the, the stomach of an adult horse. You need about three meters of endoscope. Um, and back in the day, you couldn't buy a three-meter endoscope. And um, There's only one company in Japan, Pentax, that used to essentially sew two one-and-a-half-meter endoscopes together, so they had a horrible bend in them. And each of those scopes cost around about two hundred two hundred fifty thousand dollars $250,000. So there weren't mm-hmm. many of them in the world. So, when I came back to the UK, which was what, 2004, so 12 years ago now, Um, we bought one of the first three meter scopes um, in the UK, and then I think it cost us around about 25,000, 30,000 pounds for the scope. So, you know, over a matter of not that many years, the price went down dramatically. Well, now you can buy a three meter scope for, you know, six or seven thousand pounds. So, there has been an explosion. Um, I mean as I said in 2004 I think we're one of only two or three places in the UK with a three meter endoscope and now there are about 150 so um, it is something which is done far more frequently now than it was you know in the last decade.
1: Did you find when you were over in America is is there a lot of difference between the, the training the way that they internally check horses than over here?
0: Uh, no, I mean, if anything, I think the the American system is much more um, regulated. They've had residency programs at the universities for years. You know, those programs fulfil very specific criteria with the sort of governing body that accredits us as specialists. Um, and, and Europe has, you know, only started and you know from about 2000 onwards. They've done a brilliant job of catching up, and they are now certainly equivalent. But, you know, certainly back when I was doing a doing a residency, it was just a bit more of a structured and an established program in the US. Mm-hmm um but the the the, the training certainly u s to the u k is really pretty much the same these days. You tend to see different types of horses so i, I saw far more in the way of thoroughbreds um, over there than I do now. I work predominantly with sport horses now as I have for the last you know twelve years or so but mm. uh, other than that they 're a bit different. Uh, America gets weird and wonderful diseases, lots of things you know rabies downwards west Nile that we don 't get here um, kind of missed some of those as they were quite good fun to treat oh, uh, but well, at the same time <laughs> they weren't very nice with the horse so it's nice no. coming back to somewhere we don't have those nasty yeah things.
1: i'm grateful i'm grateful we don't have those <laughs> <laughs> well today we're going to be talking about gastric ulcers because it seems that i don't know whether more people more horses are suffering from the problem or whether we're just becoming more aware of it but we don't really understand it so we're hoping you can help
0: yeah i, I think most of the time at well, it's only the moment in my opinion, it's really more of, uh, of a people not being aware of it, or, or not being aware, you know, an increasing uh, uh, awareness of it, but in some cases a sort of that awareness doesn't go hand in hand with an increasing understanding. Um, I don't think we're seeing more ulcers than we did 10 years ago. I just think there are more people looking for the same quantity of ulcers, you know, and so the number of horses which are being scoped has gone up dramatically within the UK. As I say, you know, 10, 12 years ago I would scope 150 a year, and last year We scoped, you know, just over 400 horses and so, you know, the numbers have gone up but the the proportion of horses that we see with ulceration has stayed pretty much the same. One of the big changes and one of the things that, that sort of if you like, we led the way a little bit on was the understanding of ulceration in sport and leisure horses versus racehorses. Mm. You know, the, the difference in the two populations is, is quite great. You know, you can look at a lot of racehorses in, in a few small areas, so you can get very mm. large numbers of horses done very quickly from that you can get a really nice um, impression of how frequent ulcers are you know sport horses don't live in stables of you know 30 50 100 150 horses and so they're much more spread out so it took a little bit longer to understand the condition in 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 sport horses and we do see some quite marked differences so in race horses we see anywhere between about 80 and 100% of horses when they go into race training and will develop ulceration in their stomachs. Um, they tend to develop in a very particular part of the stomach. With sport horses, the, 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 the um, number is different. Um, it's anywhere from around about sort of 30 to 60% of them will develop ulcers and they develop in a completely different part of the stomach as well. And that's so, really interesting. Um,
1: do you know, do you know yeah, what
0: causes the ulcerations? If you look at, so, you, uh, you sort of almost take a step back really, the, the first thing with these guys with ulceration really is to appreciate when we talk about stomach ulcers, it makes it sound like it is one disease and it isn't. It's actually multiple diseases. There are three types of diseases that we see, two of which are, 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 are very common. And When we did the consensus statement last year, that's one of the things that we really sort of tried to drive home to people is that don't think of it as one disease think of it as, as multiple diseases when we look at race horses they get what's called squamous gastric disease I and mean, that refers to disease in the top third of the stomach to so the top third of the stomach in the horse is white and it's lined with a tissue which is very similar to your eye mouth and your eye esophagus and basically the lining from the mouth to the human stomach is white then when you get to the human stomach it's pink and the horses have this little outpouching of the white stuff right at the top of their stomach and we call that squamous this disease uh, and it really does reflect increased um, exposure of that tissue to acid and it's the commonest thing you'll find in racehorses and we understand how to make it experimentally pretty well and we understand some of the risk factors that cause it epidemiologically pretty well as well in um, sport horses we see disease in the bottom portion of the stomach Um, in the glandular tissue which is pink looks very much like your eye stomach and Mm -hmm. we tend to find the majority of the disease right at the end of the pink portion of the stomach by the entrance to the small intestine so we see these distinct populations with their own little diseases if you like.
1: So I'm still interested to know what would cause the difference between um, getting uh, the diseases at the top of the stomach or the bottom? Is it the food that they're eating? Is it stress? Is it exercise?
0: And so if you look at squamous ulceration, so give it its proper name, equine squamous gastric disease or what used to be called primary squamous ulceration, the disease we see most commonly in racehorses, it can occur in sport and leisure horses, but it's not as common. That's analogous to heartburn in people. Um, And it's caused by predominantly by feeding practices, stabling and exercise. And the main experimental model to generate ulceration in that portion of the stomach is what's called the food deprivation model. So you essentially starve horses for 12 hours, then you feed them for 12 hours, starve them for 12 hours, feed them for 12 hours. And if you do that, you can make ulcers in around about five days. And what's most interesting is the timing of starvation relative to ulcer formation. So if you starve horses in the daytime, You'll make stomach ulcers within that five to seven day window. If you starve them at night, you won't make ulcers. Um, and so, when we talk about horses needing access to food in their stomach in order to prevent ulceration, what we're really talking about is access to to roughage and feed in the daytime, not at night time. Now, that goes completely against what I was taught in pony club, where you you know you almost made the world's the biggest haynet. You need a winch to pull up each night to give to the horse. Uh, Mm -hmm. And actually, horses, um, if you look at voluntary eating studies, so you put horses in low-impact stables and give them access to food 24 hours a day, most horses actually sleep at night and they don't eat at night, they eat in the day. If you force them to eat at night by not giving them food in the day, then they will eat at night. Um, Mm. But what we know from ulcer studies is that it's only daytime food deprivation, so daytime starving, um, that causes ulcers. So when I advise people about when they should be giving hay, I try and encourage them to feed 80% of their hay um, between around about 7 in the morning and 10 or 11 at night and then 20% of their hay during the night time. So what you're trying to do is to you know, flip what we're taught in Pony Club on its head to make sure the stomach is full of hay during the daytime. Now if you apply that to the the average racehorse, most racehorses don't get access to forage in the daytime but they get access to lots of forage at night and we can see that as being one of the biggest risk factors. Um, and so at an interval, a daytime interval between hay nets of more than six hours will make you far more likely to have to have squamous ulceration
1: wow it 's almost like a quite a simple solution to stop the, the them forming ulcers
0: oh I, no, nothing i 'm going to tell you um, is terribly difficult sometimes it takes a little bit of believing, but you know if, if you look at the the, the current best state of knowledge that we have, the techniques that we can use to try and limit the chances of ulceration, and they do only limit it. They don't guarantee that you still won't find a horse with ulcers. The techniques we use to limit it are really pretty basic and pretty simple. Unfortunately, what's happened with scomous ulceration is the focus has been driven very much onto what you actually put in the horse's bucket. And so if you look at what's called relative risk, so the the, the number of, or the the increase in risk of of ulceration being present associated with different feeding practices, if you take a horse's hay net away during the daytimes, you have what's called a greater than six-hour forage interval. So your horse stands there for more than six hours in the daytime without forage. You can increase the likelihood of ulceration in the top portion of the stomach by four to six times, wow. um, depending on which study you look at. Um, if you look at the effect that feed in the horse's bucket actually has, you can double the horse's ulcer risk by feeding more than. This is where it gets a bit complicated, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. More than two grams of non-structural carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per day. Now that's a little bit. I, I struggle with numbers like that to make <laughs> no, that sort do. of it is <laughs> in one ear and out the other. I was never. My children do better maths than me, but anyway. Um, <laughs> If you look at what that equates to for a 500 kilogram horse, that's 8 to 10 pounds of a competition mix every feed. And so you know if you do that, you will double your ulcer risk, so you 'll have exactly half the effect that you 'll have from taking the horse 's hay net away, and yet that 's what a lot of people focus on you know so generating ulcers by what you put in the bucket is very hard to achieve, and the actual effect of what goes in the bucket is relatively small when you get there, uh, which is why when I give people advice, I only talk about changing feed, but i 'm dealing with race clients because for sport and leisure horses, you just never feed that amount, so it 's just not relevant.
1: Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when we're coming up to the summer months, when we're going into mm-hmm. winter, we want our horses to fatten up a bit so we're not so worried about starving them because we want them to have a bit more weight on them. Mm-hmm. But coming into the summer, we want them to have less. And quite often you see horses that are starved in the paddock. You know, they're on strip grazing, hardly any grass. So we could be doing some serious damage by doing that.
0: Yeah, and we certainly do see that. Actually, not as frequently as you would think. But what's interesting, if you look at leisure horses, uh, we see far more alphas in horses than we do in ponies. And so actually, you know, the risk of ulceration doesn't seem to be as great in, it, you know, in, in things that are likely to need starvation. So your classic sort of Welsh pony. The advice I give to people if they are feed depriving their horse or pony to get weight off is obviously to, you know, correctly calculate the amount of hay um, that the horse is going to need when it's in its starvation paddock each day, because it's often the easiest way to control them, um, and then feed 80% of that hay during the daytime and 20% at night, because we know that nighttime starvation doesn't generate ulcers daytime starvation can Mm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why when we scope horses stomachs when we gastroscope them, we try and do it in the morning um, because you know whilst it's not very nice for owners and horses to be starved overnight what you're actually doing is not adding to the cumulative period of starvation that the horse undergoes each 24 hours by very much you know the horse chooses not to eat between about you know midnight and six in the morning and then if you're starving it from 10 at night and scoping it at half past eight in the morning well you've not added very much to that period of starvation, mm. even though some of them would would make you think otherwise when you greet them in the stable, like they haven't been yeah. fed for about a week. <laughs> Particularly geldings, but I I, I I can completely attest to that. We don't like being without food, men. Anyway. No.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not. And there are many women that don't either, including me. <laughs> very grumpy without my food um another thing that i've heard richard is all these myths and all these things that we should be looking out for you know if your horse if your horse is chewing if it's chewing things and biting on things and that could be a sign of of gastric ulcers and to be quite honest it scares me it freaks me out and i'm constantly thinking oh my gosh he's doing this does he have a stomach ulcer what signs can we look for that because we can't see the insides of the horses so what signs really should we be keeping an eye out for
0: the first thing for people to appreciate is that uh, if you scope 100 horses, uh, you know, say 100 sport horses, then you're going to find ulcers in 60 of them. Now, 60 of those horses are likely to do strange, or you know, a proportion of that, those 60 horses are likely to do strange things like being cribbiters. Some will be windsuckers. Some will be the sort I used to have one of these that wouldn't eat his hay unless he dunked it in his water to begin with. Um, and so there are horses within a population of, of, of ulcer cases that will do strange things just because that's the horse that they are Mm-hmm. rather than doing it because of their ulceration. And, and so when we look at the clinical signs associated with ulceration, what we're looking for is a little bit more consistency within population. So when I talk to clients about what, else, what sort of signs their horses might have, you've almost got like two sides of the buffet the horse can choose from. You've got the population side of the buffet where we see things like inability to maintain body conditions so for horses that lose weight during the competition season, lose weight when they're exposed to other risks Factors. I had one horse that every time the owner platted it up ready for the hunting season, the weight would fall off it. You know, oh, so yeah. it, whilst in most cases it's associated with uh, you know the, the, the competition season, in smaller numbers it can be other things. So um, inability to maintain condition. Um, we see some horses that will have appetite change. So horses that will eat their hay but not the hard feed, or the hard feed but not the hay. We find some horses are slow eaters. So whilst they used to finish their morning grub, they don't. Um, they, they they'll start leaving it. And then the final thing that we. See Within those population studies, is poor performance, and that's usually referring to racehorses that don't run as fast as they are expected to run. Uh, the other side of the buffet are the individual horse signs, and those can be quite variable, and so they, they, they can be quite individual to, to a particular horse, and those can include um, things like development of girthing pain. So horses that previously were fine when you tighten their girth or groom their abdomen, which then become quite unpleasant when you do that. Horses that have changes in their behaviour, so, once again, they were fine and they become a little bit grumpy. And then we see some horses which will get dull, stary hair coats, some horses that will stand and look like they want to pee as well. So, you mm-hmm. have all this, you have these consistent signs, and then you have these variable signs. When you look at individual populations, racehorses are much more predictable from an ulcer point of view, whereas sport horses are much more variable from a point of view. And that just reflects the different ulcers that they have. And actually, if you look at, they do really nasty things to people. So you can be paid as a human with a stomach ulcer to let doctors experiment on you. What they'll do is they'll put a little tube up your nose and then they'll staple the far end of the tube in your stomach adjacent to one of your stomach ulcers. And then they'll squirt things like alcohol, stomach acid, you know, sort of Mexican food juice down the tube and give you a button to push when it hurts. Oh, God, and what that's they, awful. I, I know, it's not very nice. What they appreciate is that there is a big variation in individuals' appreciation of gastric pain, and there's a big, what's called temporal variation. So if you sit someone on a sofa and chill them out then their stomach doesn't hurt, if you make them exercise or you stress them out, then their perception of pain goes up. And we see the same thing in horses. So you find some horses that have horrible looking stomachs and it makes no difference to them whatsoever. Mm. And you see some horses that have very mild lesions mm. and it looks really nasty and we did a study with Team GB before the Hong Kong Olympics which was the Beijing Olympics which was years ago now where we scoped lots and lots of long-listed and short-listed horses and we found that the dressage horses and the eventers were more likely to have a positive effect from treatment and have clinical signs associated with the ulcers in the show jumpers so some of the show jumpers had most horrific looking stomachs and they just didn't care about it so there is a huge amount of, of, of variation in clinical signs
1: oh, I wish we could find out why and you know because it would make sense that if you had more damage inside that it would hurt them more I don't know and you'd also expect show jumpers to be in more pain because the work Oh, I can't say it's more strenuous because it's not because dressage is athletic and I'm very pro dressage. I love it. But you'd expect cantering around and jumping over fences to stretch the stomach more.
0: No, I mean, if you look at what actually happens when you, so if you look at the change in in stomach size and acidity when you exercise horses so this work was done at the University of Florida and it was really clever work, they essentially used a Mickey Mouse balloon, which is about the volume of a horse's stomach, they collapsed that balloon passed it through a stomach tube into the stomach then they reinflated it, connected the sort of nose end of the little tube to the balloon to a pressure transducer to see how the stomach changed, then they measured pH in the stomach at the same time and what they found was that when you exercise horses, as soon as you move from walk into trot, what you get is a top-to-bottom compression of the stomach. You also get an increase in the amount of acid which is produced in the stomach. And in a certain type of ulceration, we call it splash ulceration, which is a a sort of white, a a, a squamous form of ulceration, what you can then end up with is increased acid exposure to an ulcer. So one of the most important things to appreciate with stomach ulcers um, is that it's a bit like grazing your knee, climbing on the rocks at the beach. You only notice it hurts when you go in the sea. So you've got a combination of it's a defect in your skin surface and irritant in the form of, of salty seawater. Stomach ulcers are the same, you know, just because you've got an ulcer doesn't mean it hurts. Um, mm. If that ulcer isn't exposed to acid, then it's not going to hurt. Um, and because horses don't eat spicy food and drink alcohol, there's nothing very <laughs> much else that annoys their stomachs. Yeah,
1: well, that, that was I got to, my next question actually was about the... Um In terms of the acid then, can we help our horses by having a less acidic diet? Because we do that with humans and maybe a more alkaline diet.
0: Now, so I mean, if you look at, so the, the, the problem a the horse has is, is the horse itself. Um, and so horses are what are called continuous variable acid secretors. Um, so whereas you and I are meal secretors, so just before, during, and just after we eat, will produce stomach acid. So if you get heartburn or you have a little bit of, of, of you know, ulcer pain, you can self-medicate with things like Rennies, um, you know, sort of other antacids pretty effectively because you know when it's going to hurt. Mm. Um, horses differ greatly in that they continuously produce stomach acid irrespective of diet Um, and they do that 24 hours a day and they produce a huge amount of it Um, so what they've essentially got is two to four liters of a a juice in their stomach and that's about 200 times more acidic than vinegar and it's permanently there Um, so anything that you put into the horse's stomach is going to have a
1: you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry
0: very marginal effect. When I was a a resident in the U.S., we looked at a product called Maaloc, which is a a sort of liquid version of Rennies. um, And in order to keep the horse's stomach neutral, so to get rid of any acidity in the stomach, we had to give the horse a quarter of a liter of that solution um, about every two to three hours. So, we were stomach tubing this white stuff in, and the horses didn't like it very much, and we all looked rather painted white at the end of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the thing to appreciate with horses is you can't change what's in the stomach mm-hmm. um, by diet alone, just using antacids. You know, so th- it's difficult to achieve that to a degree to cause any sort of ulcer healing. Probably the most effective way of, of reducing acid production in the horse is to start feeding them corn oil. And yeah. so, th- corn oil has a very interesting omega-3-6 um, acid ratio. So just like you and I are taught to eat oily fish once or twice a week in order to limit our chances of, of heart disease, um, what that oily balance is doing is changing the ratio of little chemical mediators in your body that stimulate bad inflammation um, from those that dampen down bad inflammation. You can achieve the same effect on gastric acid production by giving horses around about 50, 50 ml of corn oil once or twice a day. It takes about six weeks to work and that can reduce the amount of acid in the stomach quite dramatically so that's something they say we've been doing to horses for about the last 10 or 12 years is including as part of their dietary advice just corn mm. oil you buy from the supermarket um, so, if you're going to give any supplement to your horse from a gastric point of view, I would go to go to Sainsbury's, or if you want the cold pressed version, go to Waitrose. That's what that's what you dress up you look like, isn't it? But anyway, uh, no, so it, 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 corn oil can have a, have a marked effect. We think on, on gastric acid production in the horse.
1: I can't keep up with all these things. That all these lotions and potions that we have to try and give our horse. Um, it, it's, oh. it's, it's you know you've got biotin for the feet, you've got corn oil, <laughs> then you've got linseed oil, and and it's so hard to know what's the right thing to do because these i guess are preventative measures um if you think that possibly your horse might get a gastric ulcer but it's hard to know i mean oh i don't know i don't know richard it's hard to know what we're supposed to do with everything because there's so much to do
0: I mean, if if you look at all the different supplements which are out there, um, there are no supplements which over a a meaningful period of time, so I'm talking less than six to nine weeks, have any effect on the appearance of stomach ulcers in the horse whatsoever. Now, you can have a horse that will feel better on particular supplements, but you're never going to heal ulcers with supplements. Now, that doesn't mean supplements are bad. I use loads of supplements in in, in treating the cases that I see each year, but supplements in general are better preventative than they are curatives mm. and any supplement that you give gastrically must be appropriate to the type of ulceration that your horse has and the horse's own gastric physiology so um, for horses with white ulceration the classic racehorse we can't compete or those horses can't compete on drugs like Ulcergold or GastroGard they're prohibited under, under BHA rules so what we do up until the day of racing is we will put those horses onto antacid supplements there's a particular supplement that I, that I use quite I have been using for about the last 10 or 12 years and it works really well but you have to give it four times a day, and you have to give lots of it. So we give it. So when I recommend supplements, we don't pay any attention to what's on the side of the pot. We sort of pay attention to the science of of making it work. Mm. Um, and so. I, I, I Antacid supplements, as say, work really well with, with white squamous gastric disease. Of the sport and leisure horses that we see with pink glandular gastric disease, I tend to use coating agent supplements, and those are based on a combination of pectin and lecithin, often with the addition of calcium carbonate, and that those can work as preventatives really, really well. But as I say, you know, you you need to know what type of ulcer you've got in the stomach before you go down that route. Otherwise, you are largely wasting your money. Um, And
1: that's the hard thing. So we know that if we Mm. make sure that we eat the feed in the the day, so they're given lots of feed Mm. in the day and give them some corn oil. That's pretty much Mm -hmm. the most that we can do to try and prevent anything happening.
0: Yeah, so when I go to big yards, and we don't do as much as this as we used to sort of eight uh, eight or nine years ago, there used to be a lot of big race yards and particularly endurance yards as well that I would scope sort of, you know, two or three times a year. And what it gave us was a reasonable bank of experience um, of how you can, within a population, limit ulceration. And the the recommendation that I give to people are certainly corn oil supplementation. That seems to really help, Um, you know, daytime forage provision. There's been some really nice work looking at how you can make horses eat hay consistently and how you can slow down how quickly that hay and generate more in the way of chews and saliva. And, and you can do that by instead of giving your horse one hay net, give them two or three. So actually split the ration up, put one hay net in the back, one at the front, and you'll cause the horse to, to sort of you know move from one to the other. Mm. Um, and certainly that'll slow them down, make their stomach you know, fuller throughout the daytime period. And then the final thing which I recommend people to do, and we've been doing this say for about twelve years now, is to to feed their horses prior to exercise. So not to starve them like we were all taught in Pony Club really? but to actively give them food yeah horses are weird
1: how long yes they are <laughs> mm-hmm. how long should you wait though before you know before giving them food and riding because I was always taught never do that because you're going to cause them damage
0: no and before answering that I'm going I'm to drone on with a bit of gastric physiology in horses um, and mm-hmm. so w- when I lecture on this I've got a nice pic, um, video of a zebra eating at a watering hole and it's eating sort of knee high grass uh, and whilst you know that movie's playing in the back background. I tell people that, you know, horses' gastric motility is enhanced by exercise. So they're very different to people. You know, when when we exercise, our stomach slows down. When horses exercise, their stomach speeds up. Their anatomy is completely different. So whereas our stomach sits just underneath our diaphragm, so that big shelf of muscle that separates the chest from the abdomen, the horse's stomach sits back from the diaphragm. There's a bit of colon and a big chunk of liver between it and the diaphragm. Also, the diaphragm is in front of the stomach, not as it is in people where it's on top of the stomach. So when Mm -hmm. you exercise, If you've just had a big meal, your stomach won't get rid of that meal. It'll start to ferment, produce gas, and as you jog along, the stomach will hit your diaphragm, and that's one of the theories as to why you get a stitch when you're running. Horses anatomically and physiologically can't have that happen because there's no way the stomach can move forward, and when it's jogging around up and down, you know it can't push its way through the colon and the and the liver to get there. The second thing to appreciate is where blood supply actually moves when horses exercise. So when you exercise, the blood which goes to your stomach is shunted away from your stomach and it goes to your muscles Um, that means you can run faster horses when they exercise on an empty stomach exactly the same thing happens if you then repeat the same um, little experiment that looked at blood flow but instead of starving them you actively feed the horse within half an hour of starting their exercise blood supply to the stomach is maintained blood supply to the muscles um, goes up it doesn't just go to the level you get with starvation it goes beyond the level of starvation so horses have actually adapted to be able to eat and run and to continue to run for longer if they have food in their stomach and this mm. brings me back to the sort of zebra um, movie you know towards the end of this up pops a lion and the zebra gets off and uh, obviously jumps up and does a runner uh, mm-hmm. uh, what it doesn't do is to turn around to the lion look at its watch and say I'm sorry 40 minutes before you can chase me yeah. um, uh, but what, yeah. what we've done as people um, is to take a knowledge of our own physiology and anatomy and apply it to a different species where that's incorrect and um, so say what we've been doing for the last 10 years is to say to people what you you want in the stomach is a small quantity of food we know that potentially improves performance but you also want that food to trap acid so um, as there's 2 to 4 litres of gastric acid within the stomach gastric juice within the stomach what I get people to do is to feed 2 litres of an unmolassed chaff so just boring um, chaff um, within 30 minutes of starting exercise that sort of food in the stomach takes quite a long time to leave Um, Mm. so the horse's stomach empties out liquids very quickly but um, fibrous solids quite flow So that'll remain in the stomach for around about two to four hours at least. And what it'll do is it'll improve gastric blood supply, which means the stomach is able to protect itself against the acid it makes during exercise. But it'll also physically trap that acid juice from sloshing around. The juice is now contained within the ball of hay rather than sloshing around. And, and, you know, all you've essentially done is to turn, you know, two to four um, litres of liquid into, you know, two to four litres of liquid and hay so you've not mm. made the stomach any bigger, you've just changed what's in there.
1: So, okay, we, we can't all ride um, for 30 minutes and then jump off and feed the horse, you know some of us are going out hacking oh, yeah, and right, that. Yeah. so could we, could we feed and then jump on our horse and ride and, and I'm taking it shouldn't be hard
0: that that is exactly what you need to do sorry you misinterpreted me so what i get people to do is within 30 minutes of starting work so you know 30 minutes so from 30 minutes to the moment you get on and ride off give Ah. your horse two liters of chaff that'll then protect the stomach for two to four hours so if you're doing an endurance ride and you're going to be exercising for longer than two to four hours repeat that in two to four hours time then you'll have a stomach which has a we believe would have a maintained blood supply and also um, trapped acid so not acid sloshing around burning the stomach wall but acid that's stuck to hay
1: yeah what about the nuts though so if you normally feed your horse nuts and chaff in the evening but you want to ride first can you give them the nuts with the chaff before you ride or should you feed them the chaff before and then when you get back give them the nuts
0: right so it's really ideally the chaps this is another bit of physiology with the horse's stomach you need to understand so um, if you have a meal and then you stick an endoscope in your stomach what you'll find is it looks like a giant bowl of porridge everything is is mulched up and very uniform in its structure Um, horses stomachs aren't like that Um, so horses have evolved to cover you know 20 to 30 kilometres each day and to eat a variety of sort of fibrous feeds and what they've been able to do is to trap foods in the stomach that benefit from um, soaking in gastric acid for longer so they keep those foods in the stomach for longer and to let out other foods which don't need that sort of soaking out much quicker Um, and so when you look at a horse's stomach instead of having a big bowl of porridge what you've got are these distinct layers so we call it gastric stratification so down at the bottom of the stomach you've got what's called the small particle layer which is essentially water and then very finely ground things like nuts Um, that layer is very acidic it's got a ph of about one to two floating on top of that you then have the sort of moderate sized layer that's usually where grains live and um, that's got a pH of around about sort of um, two to four or five and then floating on top of that um, you've then got your roughage layer your fibrous layer so that's where the individual particles are very big so think you know bits of chaff or, or sort of balls of hay um, mm-hmm. and, and that stuff floats on top of the stomach and it's almost neutral so the pH is sort of six to seven now that very fibrous stuff um, leaves slowly so that benefits from a bit of soaking in the stomach so that that will reduce in quantity by half um, about every sort of two to four hours it's the main reason why when we scope horses' stomachs we starve them for about eight to 12 hours prior because we want to get that hay out of the stomach the very dense stuff down the bottom so your nuts and your liquids that will reduce by 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 half about every 15 to 40 minutes and so what you want is something that's going to stay in there for a while and that's why we choose chaff because it will stay in there for a bit so prior to exercise you just want to really boring chaff meal um, you know if you need to throw a handful of nuts in or something else to sort of make the horse eat it you know if they're a little bit um, picky with what they want mm-hmm. to eat then by all means do but it really should be a chaff based meal rather than a pellet based meal
1: and so then when you come back how quickly can you then give them their pellets and their nuts from from? Oh, straight away them? feed them straight right. away <laughs> if you
0: want to brilliant yes, you can also give horses lots of water straight away there's been some brilliant work done um, before the Athens uh, not Athens the um, Atlanta Olympic years ago looking at rehydrating horses horses orally, I mean, you can give a horse anywhere up to about 25 to 30 litres of water within 15 to 30 minutes of exercise and they'll rehydrate them really nicely without any colic or anything like that, that's a, that's another of these wonderful myths that we're all taught at Pony Club that just aren't true.
1: Oh you're making my life so much easier right now because the, yeah. the evenings that I've spent waiting in the dark an hour to feed him after we've exercised, I never had to worry No
0: and actually we, 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 we've started to look back, one of our interns is looking back actually because we've you know, had this intervention to whether we see horses that have had um, you know, gastric ulceration been given this advice, whether they are more likely to have bouts of exercise associated colic afterwards and certainly the early impression we're getting is that no, they're not. So it's mm-hmm. not as though, you know, if, this, if what we were all taught in Pony Club is true, we'd be seeing all these horses call, you know, people calling up afterwards saying, oh, I've suddenly got a colic in my horse after you've exercised it we're just not seeing that. So these horses tolerate it really nicely. Okay. Uh, and actually one of the advantages of being in private practice and scoping horses over, say, being in a university is we get a lot of case continuity. So there are some horses I've scoped, you know, once or twice a year for about the last eight years, uh, you know, horses with what we call permanent gastric change, so lumps in their stomach that don't go away. And, you know, So those are quite a nice population to look at how these, you know, subtle changes to the way that you feed them influence them. And we just don't see exercise-associated choric in those guys at all. It just doesn't happen.
1: So ultimately, then, the only way we're going to really ascertain if they have a gastric ulcer is by digging endoscope. Mm.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, there are no um, sort of blood tests or anything you can look at that will let you know whether your horse has an ulcer or not. There are no sort of fecal tests that will let you know whether your horse has an ulcer or not. And so we tend to recommend just scoping their stomachs, really. You know, it is a relatively, I mean, I, I do you know, 400 odd a year, so it takes about two to three minutes if you don't have to talk to the client. If you talk to the client, it takes a bit longer. Um, what we tend to do is just have a little bit of a chat while we're pumping the stomach up with air. You know, then get all the way around, take some pictures, and then have a chat with the, the sort of scope out of the horse. But, no, I mean, it's a very. Boring procedure from the horse's point of view. So we'd, we sedate them. I tend to use a drug called xylazine, which makes the horse lightly sedated for about 15 minutes. They can swallow the whole way throughout that. So at the end of the procedure, they can eat. We put local anaesthetic up the right nostril, and then the endoscope goes up the nostril and down into the stomach. Takes about two metres of endoscope from the nostril to the stomach. Maybe then pump the stomach up with a bit of air, have a look around taking lots of pictures, and then. Um, on the way back out we suck all the air we've put in out and come out and to say you know in most horses it takes two to three minutes to do if you've got a horse with a bit of food in there or an awkward shaped stomach sometimes it takes a bit longer um, I've had a load of, of horses that love to belch at the moment so you pump <laughs> the air in they'd belch the air out that makes it a bit longer as well
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's good to know that it doesn't take that long I expected it to take yes. hours and it'd be like quite a painful grueling process for the horse but actually it's not like that at all
0: no I, I did a demo day for British dressage southwest about I don't know three or four weeks ago now um, where we did some lectures and then actually brought two horses into the barn where we were doing it and did actual scope demonstrations. And it's amazing how many people thought it was going to be unpleasant. And um, I used to be part of a um, comparative GI research group where we'd go and spend some days with the human guys scoping people where there's lots of coughing and spluttering and all of that sort of stuff. Um, horses don't have much of a gag reflex. Um, and so, you know, if you compare this to having your horses lung scoped or a trach wash done, um, this is much less irritant for the horse. So. Um, I don't even put a twitch on them or put them in stocks. They just stand in their stable or stand in the exam room and off we go.
1: I'm glad you don't use a twitch, Richard. I don't think we'd be friends if you used that.
0: <laughs> no, the, the vast majority of horses don't need it, actually. they just, you know, It's always a little bit ticklish going up the nostril, but as soon as you're in the esophagus or the tube from the back of the um, Back in the pharynx, back to the stomach. Most horses find this a very boring procedure.
1: And so then, when, once you've you've endoscoped them, you found out that they've got uh, gastric
0: ulcers. Is it easy to cure? Well, can we fix them? Yeah, and so um, it, once again, you know, if you look at um, the stomach, there are two lining tissues, and we get three potential types of disease, and so what we try and come up with is a plan that is individual to that horse, that owner, and the type of ulceration they have. So if you look at white ulceration, you know, the equine squamous disease, it's really easy to treat, and using acid-suppressant drugs, so things like Ulcergold or we um, will get rid of lesions very, very quickly. Um, you know, you can have clinical success in over 90% of horses within um, sort of 28 days. And what we're starting to appreciate more and more is that historically we've probably over-treated horses, so either treated them for a bit too long. So we see some types of ulceration, particularly very superficial, widespread ulcers that heal very quickly, sometimes within 14 days or 21 days. Uh, we tend to find that deeper solitary lesions take a bit longer to go. The other thing we've appreciated recently is we don't need to use as much of the drug each day. So whereas before mm. we would give a whole tube for an average 600 kilogram horse, now often will only give half a tube and we don't see much of a drop off in effect provided you use the drug in a sensible manner so we know that more of the omeprazole so the active ingredient in drugs like Gastrogard, also gold more will get into the bloodstream and actually have an effect on the stomach if you give it first thing on an empty stomach and then feed the horse half an hour later uh, now the easiest way to get a relatively empty stomach in your horse is to give them most of their food in the daytime and they've been sleeping overnight they won't have eaten very much and when you squirt the Gastrogard in the stomach will be largely empty and you Feed them again in about half an hour's time. So, you know, whilst there is that little half an hour wait, it's actually not a huge imposition to. Mm-hmm. To, to you know do in order to use half the amount of drug and, and if your horse isn 't insured then obviously that makes treatment much much more cost effective um, for horses with pink ulceration so glandular disease if you just use drugs like gastricide ulcer gold alone, then only about thirty percent of ulcers will heal and actually a large proportion get worse and so what we started doing actually as a, as a practice like this is ten or twelve years ago and I presented it at the colic symposium I know, about three or four years ago now mm-hmm. um, is to use a combination of treatment. So use the, the guard in combination with a little white tablet called sucralfate, mm-hmm. um, which is a little human tablet. And what that sucralfate does is it binds to um, ulcers in the bottom portion of the stomach. It improves their blood supply, protects them from acid, but probably most importantly, it protects little things called growth factors. So horses produce tons of growth factors in their saliva. and um, They've got loads of little receptors on the edge of ulcers looking for those growth factors, but those growth factors are killed by the acid. So what the sucralfate almost does is to create a Little umbrella under which the growth factors can live and if you look at that combination of treatment, depending on exactly where you are in the stomach and what sort of ulcers you've got, you can get anywhere from about 60 to 90% healing over a wow. month. Um, and so, you know, that combination for pink ulcers works really well. Yeah. Uh, and that's for me, is the, the main indication for scoping these guys. You know, the, the main treatment's expensive. So if you're assuming that all horses have the same sort of ulceration and only using one treatment, well, you know, if you've got racehorses, then that's probably going to be correct. If you don't have a racehorse, then you might be treating completely the wrong portion mm-hmm. of the stomach and giving yourself a 30% chance that your money's going to be well spent, and your horse is going to be happier.
1: Yeah, it's just a massive relief to know that you can help them because the fear of gastric mm. ulcers has taken over I think and actually it's quite a simple process isn't it? It's we we oh. can fix the horses they're not all going to die.
0: No, crikey, honestly this is something you say that I, I, I do you know day in day out I've scoped two today already I think I've got another one later on this afternoon and treating these guys, it's not rocket science, it's pretty simple and easy really and you know if you come up with a plan which is individual to the horse, then you'll get pretty good success rates. If you see it as one disease and don't treat them individually, then you won't. And also, you know, it's important to to do those subtle management changes. So when we talk about you know treating with the, the gastricard and the sucralfate together, that's not all we're doing. We are giving people the corn oil, the multiple hay in the stable, and the and the pre-exercise feeding advice. So that's our treatment package. If you like, mm-hmm. um, I tend to rescope horses after one month in order to see that they've. Healed and also most importantly to find out that the client has perceived a positive benefit you know if you're treating something in the stomach because your horse has got an issue then as whatever it is in the stomach heals you want to make sure that your horse's issue goes away yes Uh, and we see you know the majority of cases those two things go hand in hand so the endoscopic and the clinical improvement you know correspond but we see some horses where you fix their stomach and the horse is unchanged well you know in those guys forget about the stomach and keep looking you know there's no point in treating them for another two or three months with expensive drugs if it's not the problem the horse had in the first place Mm. and then we also see some where they have an ulcer you know ulcers that perpetuate we call them chronic gastric change cases and some of those guys you'll never get rid of their lesions so then it becomes about clinical management and that's where some of the supplements work brilliantly in these guys
1: well richard it's been fascinating thank you i feel like uh, i I feel like my brain has now gone into a tumble dryer
0: (laughs) <laughs> i'll drone on for hours about stomachs you've been very patient do
1: No, it's really interesting because we don't understand it and and i feel like i do i never knew before that there were two separate diseases i just thought it was gastric ulcers they were lumps inside the stomach so yeah no it's been really interesting thank you so much for joining us
0: no, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Would you mind if I popped the you sent kindly sent us some images earlier? Can I pop those on the horse hour website?
0: Absolutely, please do. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. And hopefully if you see the images it'll make a bit more sense what I've been talking about. I
1: understand. So just head to horsehour.co.uk and you can see all the pictures that Richard's given us. And we can follow you on Twitter as well, can't we? You give you great at giving out information. Is it at B <laughs>
0: Grumpy Horse vet. yeah, I know. <laughs> no. you know I don't think my children gave me that name. <laughs> is that your personal twitter account that is my personal twitter account but there's also the um our our, um, practice account here which is B&W equine vet
1: yeah but yours sounds way more fun at grumpy horse vets (laughs) if
0: you don't mind comments about dodgy coffee and things like that and (laughs) you'll be fine
1: it's been brilliant thanks so much richard
0: amy it's a pleasure
1: Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and I hope you have a really lovely Christmas because the next time we speak, it'll be Boxing Day and you can hear an interview with Debbie from Forces Equine. They support anybody in the equestrian industry who works in our armed forces or our police or our ambulance service or even our fire service. It was really lovely speaking to Debbie and she has the 12 days of Christmas coming up from Boxing Day where you can help raise money for the Wilbury Wonder Pony Foundation and also win some really really good prizes so i hope you've been really good this year and that father christmas brings you and your horse some really lovely presents Uh, do tag us in your photos just tag at horse hour on twitter facebook instagram horse hour will be going on as normal on boxing day and i can't wait to see what you guys have been up to have a lovely lovely christmas i'll speak to you soon you've been listening to horse hour Join the community on Twitter Mondays, 8 pm UK time, 3 pm Eastern by using the hashtag horsehour. Follow Amy at Amy Stevenson1 and subscribe to us on ACast, iTunes, Stitcher and Player FM.